Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lashley, and we are honored and excited to have with us the author of the new book, Never Panic Early, An Apollo 13 Astronaut's Journey. Uh, Mr. Fred Hayes is here. Mr. Hayes, thanks for coming on the show. I'm glad glad to join you. So, you know, you called the book Never Panic Early, and throughout its pages, you discuss several of your never panic early moments. Aircraft incidents, engine flameouts, having to to find and land at an unknown airport. Do you think these moments in your career kind of helped you develop a a never panic early mentality? Well, I think flying, being a pilot, uh, develops that really because you... uh, you have, I've had a number of problems, and anybody that flies long enough has problems they face. And uh, you learn uh, that it's better uh, when you get a problem to, to do one of three things. Uh, one, you can act too quickly and do something that uh, either does, does not help or uh, makes things worse, or you can do nothing ever, or you can do the study of the situation, look at all the data you have available through the instrumentation, instrument panel readings, and uh, then do uh, what you think is the best thing to do to solve the problem. As you said, I've had several incidents. To me, everybody has those kind of incidents with their family. I've had uh, a grandchild uh, suffer a grand mal seizure once when I was driving a car with her, and it's now that that was uh, obviously one of those uh, that I had to decide and uh, very quickly think about what I was going to do uh, with the situation with her in the car, whether pull over and uh, not. And I just held her tight uh, back so she wouldn't hit the instrument panel and, and got off at the first exit I could uh, to search for a medical facility. Figure somebody out because I, I was on a trip, so I didn't know where in Louisiana in the middle of nowhere. So I didn't know exactly where to go to. You know, it's interesting reading your book because we think of the astronauts being, you know, this kind of pinnacle of technological achievement of those programs. But you start off the story talking about, you know, your childhood and you're born in the 1930s and and that kind of rural life in uh, Mississippi is not what we normally would associate with the astronauts. So how do you think that kind of rural upbringing prepared you for the path later on in your life? Uh, well, I, I think it was just the normal upbringing in a safe environment, a small town of Biloxi, getting through school uh, with really no problems at all. And I hadn't really uh, been really enamored too much with uh, the way that some of the technology has grown to an extent. Some things, I think, have gone too far with uh, automation and uh, computers and both flight vehicles and uh, other things we're doing, including cars today. So at any rate, I've kept up through my school. I was I went to engineering school and obviously got involved with uh, the use of computers, things like structural analysis. Obviously uh, got through uh, growing up that way in school to uh, know, know the availability of the useful uh, technology to what you were trying to do. Same way today I send... Uh, I'm on media, Facebook, uh, use emails, send pictures. You know, I do, do make the, what I call the useful use of the technology uh, that's, that suits me. I'm not doing my banking online, though, for instance, uh, <laughs> things like that. So, you know, a bunch of the early astronaut memoirs, you know, they, they will tell you the first time they laid eyes on an airplane and they knew they wanted to be a pilot, you know, when they received a flight in a barnstormer or something along those lines. 
But you come to aviation through a little bit of a different route. You were looking to join the military and kind of came across the cadet aviation program. Uh, so would you say that your getting into aviation was a bit different than some of your other colleagues at the time? Uh, very, very much. I had never been in an airplane in my life, even sitting on the ground. And uh, I ended up in the Naval Aviation Cadet Program because of the circumstances. I wanted, I wanted to serve my country, and you know, the Korean War was going on. Uh, my dad had always encouraged me, if I went into the military, to join a program that would lead to being a, an officer, commissioned officer. And at the time, I was 18 years old, graduated high school at 16. So I had eight, 18 years old, two years of college. And the only program I could join with that credentials at FIT uh, to make me an officer was the Naval Aviation Cadet Program. So I didn't think much about it. You know, I was gonna, obviously I knew I was going to have to fly airplanes along the way. So I signed up and uh, turned out, obviously, uh, from the first time I flew, uh, I thought this was terrific, uh, magical. Almost uh, just with that one flight decided I was going to have a career now different than journalism that I started in. And it was going to be in aviation somehow. I didn't know quite what that career might be, but that was changed my mind and with one flight that that was going to was going to be flying airplanes of some kind uh, along the way as I went through uh, life from there on career wise. Well, you certainly flew a lot of different aircraft types. I mean, your career, you're jumping around from all these different airplanes from the F6F Hellcat, you know, the F2H Banshee, the F9F Cougar, F80s, F86 Sabres, and a lot of other things are on the list. That's just to name a few. So um, I guess I have two questions. One, which of those is your favorite? But also, how did learning the different types of aircraft help prepare you for later on? First of all, to answer the first part of the question, you have to uh, put aircraft into families. Uh, so you'd have to consider uh, the bigger airplanes, uh, be they uh, bombers or transports of a different nature on, and on purpose. By a mil spec, they're built with higher control forces. Uh, they're not near as maneuverable. Conversely, uh, fighters or attack and only are tried they try to make them very nimble with fairly light forces. The rudder's probably the most uh, heavy force, which in jets today, you don't hardly ever use a rudder. And as far as the uh, transports, carrier type, I've only really flown one bomber, the B-57. It's the only bomber type I've flown. My favorite airplane in that class was the old DC-3, uh, C-47. Uh, in the case of uh, the ones I flew at NASA, they were either the C-47 uh, we had at Edwards Air Force Base and at NASA facility there. Uh, when I joined NASA at Cleveland Lewis Research Center, we had a Navy version, an R-4D, the same aircraft, basically. And uh, if I go to fighter types, uh, my favorite was the uh, F-86 Sabre. The way I say that is the aircraft that were most combination of capable, but their type and their age uh, at, at that time and the, what they were used for, but their handling qualities, which is a variety of things, is how, how well, basically, uh, you have ease in making them do what you choose to do, uh, tremability, uh, how, how well they can hold an attitude, how well uh, they can hold a speed, stability, as far as uh, if you're trying to hold a pipper on a target to shoot Things like that, uh, the stableness of the aircraft. Uh, with, and I, I'll say the 86 in particular because it had uh, no augmentation. 
Today, it's a little different uh, because so much uh, aircraft, basically fighters, for instance, probably can't fly without computers. They're unstable. And so what you're really judging with a modern airplane is how well the uh, flight control designer uh, has done and what the algorithms are he's put in there to make this likely poor or impossible to fly airplane fly nice or seem to fly nice. So you're not judging the basic aerodynamics of the uh, airframe and the vehicle uh, in today's modern airplanes. And similarly, a lot of that's applied in the uh, larger airplanes as well today, with a lot of augmentation uh, to make them fly nice. Now, I'm sure our, our listeners are going to be interested in your uh, your time at NASA here. So let me ask you this. About half of your class of the original 19 flew on Apollo, and then the other half flew on the uh, the early shuttle missions. And in the book, three things jumped out at me about your progression at NASA. Uh, you took helicopter training, you were assigned to the lunar module team, and you landed an early support crew assignment. Do you feel all three of these things were about equal in increasing your chances of of getting on an actual mission, or did one of those stand out for you as a lucky assignment at the time? Well, yeah, you mentioned uh, before the assignment what I did, and uh, I, I certainly I looked I looked favorable. Like helicopter training would indicate I might end up in a lunar module, <laughs> possibly on a crew in a mission, and uh, that was the thing that was going to land on the moon. So that was good. And I did have an early assignment as a support crew to Jim McDivitt, who was going to fly uh, initially Apollo 8, and then he switched to Apollo 9. And so that was good to be in that position, because normally I had a chance of moving up to being a either a backup or a prime crewman on a later mission. So yeah, I looked at those as good uh, indicators that I stood maybe not necessarily the first, but uh, somewhere that within the framework of the Apollo program, the time I would uh, eventually get to a flight position. So then let me ask you kind of a follow-on question here. You know, I don't think we will ever fully understand how the crew assignments worked or how Deke Slayton chose the crews. And I don't think I've ever read a book by an Apollo astronaut where they they did not mention that they did not understand how, how Deke did things. But you were originally backup lunar module on Apollo 9, but then 9 becomes 8 and lost the limb. You then moved over to a a backup crew of Apollo 11. You then moved to the prime crew of 14, but when Al Shepard needs more time for training, you move up to the prime crew of 13. So, you know, you move around and bump around a lot. Was that experience kind of fairly emblematic, or or were you a little unique in that regard? No, no, it was the circumstances. And I'll have to say, just like the others have said, I have no idea. Al Deke, and I'm sure with input from Al Shepard, who uh, actually was head of the astronaut office, uh, decided the, who was who was on what crews and what order of selection. But no, it, uh, it was circumstances. The uh, I was uh, initially assigned to Apollo uh, eight when it was nine. Then that pretty uh, gutsy p- uh, decision was made to fly to the moon early. Uh, without a limb, and Jim McDivitt wanted to stay with the lunar module for its first flight because he had a lot invested in it at the time. So that made nine, nine of us on move ahead of flight to eight, which was great. <laughs> Always to move, to fly, to try, maybe have a chance to fly in earlier, although I was the backup. And uh, I went to uh, backup on 11 rather than the normal cycle, which would have had me go fly 11. And that was because Mike 
Mike, who had left, departed the eight mission uh, assignment, got well. He had a, a physical problem, and he had seniority. He was in the group uh, ahead of me in the selection process. So, uh, you know, and that's the way we pretty much followed things that way in the military. You know, the commander was the big boss. Same way within our group alignments, normally they went in, in seniority in terms of uh, the group selection. So I served another backup on 11, which again, with the three mission uh, normal change uh, to the next, you'd out of flown 14, as you say, but uh, I didn't, but somebody decided that uh, Al Shepard and Stu Rusa, who were slated to fly 13, had never trained for a mission before. Some Somewhere up the line, uh, management decided they needed more training time. And uh, Jim, Jim, I know, was asked, would you mind flying 13? And he obviously said, yes, you, you always want to fly as soon as you can. So that's how we ended up on 13. You know, one of the themes that comes out a lot in the book is the importance of the simulators uh, and how much time you spent in them, you know, training for all these things. Uh, I think you mentioned that the SimSups had along the lines of about 800 credible failures or something like that. And so I guess the question that we had is with what happened on Apollo 13, how did how did what actually happened rate in terms of being a credible failure compared to what you'd see in a sim? Well, failures are looked at through the whole design and primarily led by reliability engineering and what were called FEMAs, failure mean effects analysis. They were actually written uh, reports and uh, looking at manifestation of any bow, bail closed or open or wire short or whatever. And explosions, which is what we suffered uh, on oxygen tank two, were considered a, a credible failure. Uh, certainly with rocket engines, we've seen a lot of those <laughs> along the way in testing before we started flying. And uh, the answer for the manifestation of that failure on those was you would lose the vehicle and you lose the crew. That was the assumption if you had a failure. So we uh, we actually gave uh, them a problem because we were still alive when this, when this explosion happened. So they now had a lot of things to figure out. They did the next four days to, uh, to get us home. That's a good problem to have. <laughs> yes. You know, I went back and listened to the uh, the Apollo 13 transcripts, and our listeners, uh, if they are interested, can go to uh, the website Apollo in Real Time, find Apollo 11 and Apollo 13, and, and basically listen to everyone who was on the, the ground loop and, and then including the astronauts, too. And, of course, it's Jack Swagger and Jim Lovell who report the initial problem and, and say the, you know, the now infamous line. Uh, but for the next 10 or 15 minutes, there's actually a lot of radio chatter that, that comes directly from you. You report the bang. You're reading off the voltage. You report the, the main B undervolt. Now, was it that those readings just happened to be kind of next to your seat in, in the command module? Exactly. Uh, the right couch position where I would perch had all, had all that, the cryo system, the powers, power system, had some of the environmental system stuff there. So basically, that was what I was looking at right in front of me at the time. So that that's why, and actually, Jim and Jack got up. Off away from things a little bit because they were trying to close the hatch early. There was thought maybe well we'd have to worry about a leak or what something else damaged. So they decided to isolate us in the command module and were wrestling with how to get the hatch in place. So I was pretty much the only one I guess for a little bit there on communication. 
you know, speaking of the transcripts, uh, there's a story in the book I really appreciated where you're talking about Ron Howard making the Apollo 13 film, you know, many years later, and he listens to the transcripts and says that he can't tell that there's really a big problem because everyone's so calm and ordered and, and kind of in charge of the situation. And, and I had the same thought. So I guess I was wondering, what's the secret to keeping your cool in a situation like that? You know, what's going through your head? Are you suppressing everything or, or is the training just that that good? Well, it's just another simulation. Uh, (laughs) They, these simulations, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, didn't have the big bangs or whatever, but for for things. But they, uh, the SimSoup people who were chosen uh, initially, led by Jay Honeycutt, they knew the systems well. They were tried to be very devious in their uh, research. For each of these simulations, be their launches, uh, the dynamic phase things, uh, entries, or going in, in and out of lunar orbit, or the landing itself. They dreamt up using this repertoire of over 500 failures available for the command module simulator, and there were over 300 for the lunar module simulator, what choices to make. And, and they specified exactly for the simulator operators what time to put in what failure. They tried their best to make us and mission control look bad. That was their uh, success criteria was if we, we couldn't handle it. And so that's what these sims, how these were run. Of course, we always debriefed after each of these uh, sims and our, normally the uh, flight director led it and discussed how, what we had done and why we had done it or why not. And of course, we were learning a lot when we were tra- when I was training on Apollo 8. We got some things we didn't know what to do. And actually, some were put back into as written chits into the program office to now be worked by uh, the program office back to engineering, uh, NASA, and uh, the contractor for this, this particular situation. So that's the way it was run. And uh, so, you know, the flight one was just situation was another another sim that maybe at the time I felt they went a little too far. But uh, <laughs> But it was funny, Jack Lausman, who was the Capcom, uh, that's what he quipped. He came, you know, he came online and said, and they asked, he said, well, what do you think of this, Sim? That's what, that's what he had. <laughs> you know, the, the chapter that really deals with everything that goes on on Apollo 13 is what can go wrong will go wrong. And so on top of everything else, you actually get sick while you're up there, how do you, you know, on top of everything else, how do you deal with, well, now I'm, I'm dealing with just one more problem? <laughs> well, that didn't stop me from having to do and do what I had to do. Uh, you know, I had a urinary tract infection, so I did suffer uh, foolishly. I got it because I used a Gemini bag. We had some backup, of some of those for backup rather than use a normal urine dump. And because we didn't have the ex- availability of that. And I, just, I left the, uh, the conundrum of the, on, and that allowed some of the urine to stay in contact. And so that's how I'm sure I picked up the germ and up, up my urinary tract and had the, uh, that chills and fever episodes for a couple of days, about a day and a half, actually, before entry. So, no, when, when you uh, you need to do something, uh, I, I, you know, it's not bedridden. Probably like you have a flu, you can do things you can get out of the bed and you don't feel like doing things but you can do it 
So after coming back from that harrowing episode, you know, you go into the rotation back immediately and you're backup commander on Apollo 16 and slated for 19. So when did you know for sure that 19 was not going to happen? And how do you stay focused on your role as the backup commander, you know, looking down the barrel of, of 19, maybe not not going to take off? As I recall, the announcement of that, the cancellation of 18 and 19 was probably about uh, after we were in training about uh, four months or less, right about some three or four months. That uh, moved the crew I had actually was Bill Pogue and Jerry Carr were with me to think of, think we might fly Apollo 19. They, they were moved off. Dick uh, wanted to give them a flight. They had not flown and uh, uh, we were running out of spots for people to fly. And so they moved them to the last uh, Skylab mission to do that. And I inherited Shurusa and Ed Mitchell, who were just coming off flying 14. And for a while, I didn't have them because they were off on all these post-flight activities. I enlisted, really, Tony England, who was a a support crew member for for the field trips I was doing. And that period for several months without Ed aboard. Uh, He served as my LMP when I went on the the geology field trips because you know prime and backup uh, did those uh, so that's the way i worked through uh, that period when i was sort of a crewman of one as far as uh, thinking about it you know as a backup i well i had you know you had no idea you trained to go fly the flight even as a backup which was not the way they did it in shuttle but at that time we did and it turned out to work out fine and and was good with jack the replacement with jack schweigert two and a half days before launch and I thought, well, you know, there's no telling. There may be another measles exposure. <laughs> so I always had that uh, thought in mind. Then, uh, of course, I knew that this, if it didn't, that this was going to be a deadhead uh, assignment. And, but I still did, you know, the work as if I might, I would be capable, certainly, uh, fit, fitting in again uh, if we had to, the whole, the whole crew two and a half days before launch, if it was needed. And, uh, you know, Apollo 16 is, is commanded by, uh, John Young. So at any time, did you ever, did you ever joke with him about, you know, be ashamed if, if something happened or, uh, if you got sick or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, I, I did some things and John, John still jogged a lot. He jogged I knew the path he followed and someone, someone had found a, a dead snake. So I put that snake along his path one day. <laughs> and uh so i you know i wanted to keep him up to make sure he was doing his his job to get ready <laughs> you knowing he had this backup that was anxious to go so you end you know your time at nasa as a member of the uh the shuttle approach and landing test and i think this is absolutely fascinating and our listeners can obviously go on to to youtube and actually watch these approach and landing tests they're they're terrific and you you fly free flights numbers one three and five so as a test pilot that must have been some some pretty amazing stuff you know what was it like to be the the first person to actually fly a shuttle well, the, the whole, to be a part of that program was great. And it, when I say part of the program, it wasn't just ALT. Uh, I left the astronaut office uh, and uh, I went off briefly to uh, Harvard Business School for a, a program management course in fact, four months. Came back and uh, volunteered and left left the office uh, to join Aaron Cohen in the, uh, I was his technical assistant in the Orbiter Project Office. For four years. So I really spent four years through the design development of shuttle. I served on, as, a, as you, if you read the book, I served on the evaluation team 
to pick the contractor that would build the shuttle. I was evaluated part of the proposals from the four companies that submitted and uh, then went to work uh, following the design in a program management sense, but also led uh, specifically the uh, ops team, which was comprised of uh, astronauts, uh, mission controllers, our training people through the design reviews, through a critical design review on Enterprise, and through preliminary design review on Columbia. I also sat on the engineering change board, where I, as we went along, I looked at every uh, change that was going to be made to the design. So I felt you know, embodied uh, in a different way in the vehicle, maybe than most astronauts. Uh, not, not that I was a single creator, but I was definitely a part of its uh, creation and a, t- a bigger part than I would have if I had stayed in the astronaut office. So it was a great privilege to uh, get named uh, to Crew One and and get to uh, fly the vehicle. Uh, it was a, it was a very stressful time uh, for me at least because having been in the astronaut office and understanding the uh, the politics more than I would have uh, before. What we were facing that way uh, politically uh, as we uh, as we got we're getting ready to fly in that period. Several things uh, happened. Uh, I worried about the uh, one we changed presidents. President Nick, it was President Nixon's program, and President Carter had come in, and you always worry about that. Uh, that just that the, the new president not being his program that got it started will not maybe be as supportive as uh, previous administration. And uh, also we hit that with that election that changed quite a few members as they always do, particularly on the House side in the key committees that support NASA. And uh, we, NASA had, uh, because of tile problems, had announced a two-year slip in the first orbital flight, which was also not a good note. And, and so, and Enterprise did not have a backup. We didn't have a set. We had a second vehicle in the original proposal, but we quit very quickly early on, canceled it to save money because the early budgets even wasn't what were per the program plan. Uh, we faced, so we cut, had to cut out some stuff. And uh, I was worried that if I crashed Enterprise or seriously damaged it even, that we may lose the program. President Carter had early, very early, I think within his first two months, canceled the B-1 bomber, which had obviously nothing directly to do with space shuttle. But it, it, it made me nervous, uh, it added to that nervousness uh, as well. Now, looking at your time in the shuttle, I think if we've done the math right, you've got you know, 12 minutes and 56 seconds of, of shuttle time. Uh, yeah. But a lot of the other folks, you know, Engel, Truly, Fullerton, they, they stick around a little bit longer. Does that mean you have officially the least amount of shuttle time compared or is there a, a ranking among folks like along those lines? No, no, I, you're right. It was not not much flying time. Gordo uh, quipped at that at one of the uh, debriefings. He said, uh, said that. This definitely is not a program to build up flight time. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, I think after watching, you know, untold number of interviews, I am sure that the the question astronauts get asked most often is, is how do you go to the bathroom? You know, more times than you can count. But my question is this. Is there something that you feel like you don't get asked enough or a question that you wish got asked more? Well, again, the thing that's, uh, I call it people who are not, haven't been in the program are not really studious about the space program. What they miss, miss badly is the thought of how much preparation and how much training uh, goes into uh, preparing for a flight. 
which uh, up through uh, 11 was very, very intense because we're on uh, like launches every two months without a miss. So basically your site, your training cycle was six, was six months. And on eight in particular, uh, we lost, uh, we, we were trained for the wrong mission for about uh, six weeks. So we were training for a lunar, lunar module and an Earth rendezvous type mission. And then they decided we're going to the moon. I've had people uh, think as, uh, as simply as if, for instance, a test pilot for a new airplane uh, sort of sits around playing AC Ducey for uh, 33 or four years. And then one day they call him up and say, hey, the airplane's ready. Let's go fly. Uh, even in that, that sense, the company pilot, a test pilot is immersed in the same way with the design team to worry about how that airplane is going to turn out. And that's missed by people. They really don't have any sense at all of uh, the work that goes into uh, getting ready, getting ready to go. You know, that leads me to a, a follow up question, which is, you know, obviously the Apollo program has had a tremendous cultural impact around the world and 13, maybe especially so probably because of the movie, but also, you know, just for its place in in history and, and how people remember it. So I wanted to ask you from your perspective, what do you think the legacy of the Apollo program is and, and how do you think it should be remembered, you know, as we move on into the future? Well, to answer your question directly, uh, I think I think it's a program that took a had a big challenge and taken a big step. It clearly showed that if you assemble the right talent base, the right skill mix, that you can make it happen, not without problems, but nevertheless, you can uh, work it and, and make it make it reality. I frankly, go back to your start, startup, one of the big surprises to me was Apollo 8, when they flew the mission and got back, realizing uh, the media coverage of the, uh, worldwide. I mean, to me, uh, joining the program... Uh, I, that side of it never hit me. Uh, I, I thought, of, to me, this was another great adventure in my flying career when I joined the Apollo program, and I had no idea of the uh, the public side of it, the attention that it got and uh, what followed to support that attention. That was a shock almost from a plain old test pilot uh, where I, I did most, the most of showbiz I did was the uh, technical papers at the Society of Experimental Test Pilot or the uh, IEEE or some professional association where I'd brief on the test program I had done. All right. So, you know, normally here at Balloons to Drones, uh, we like to ask folks, uh, you know, where where we can find more of your work, you know, a website, Twitter, something along those lines. Uh, but in this case, you work with the Infinity Science Center. And, of course, we also served as the uh, visitor center, a welcome center for uh, Stena Space Center where we could show uh, a lot of things, artifacts, and information about what's going on at Senate, which is almost like a forgotten center. You know, the big the big ones at uh, Kennedy Space Center and uh, Johnson and Marshall uh, got get most of the publicity, and people forget that uh, Kennedy doesn't uh, uh, support the engine certification. They just stick them on and launch, and uh, Senate really gets them ready. So that was the, the primary per- thing I saw was what it would do for young children uh, in STEM, when it turned out, STEM education. Museums are uh, uh, just the ones I've been to over the years are uh, kind of serve, uh, I call it stealth education, uh, because children go there and uh, they have fun and they uh, accidentally 
while they're there, learn things. Not not seriously planned like a classroom lecture or anything, although sometimes we do have events that are more focused. But I thought it would be, a, they're great for that purpose and that service they provide. So that's uh, what made me join the board, and that was 15 years ago, a little longer maybe now. If any of our listeners find themselves in uh, southern Mississippi or southern Louisiana and, and can make the jaunt over to the uh, uh, Infinity Science Center, I uh, recommend pulling off and, and giving that museum a, a little bit of support there. Also with a, a great online presence. I, I believe they might even still have some of the, the coveted Fred Hayes bobbleheads available. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> These were bobbleheads. I bought them actually to, to for Infinity. Uh, but the bobblehead originated uh, for a program that's hosted in the Antelope Valley in California, where uh, many of the con- well, the shuttle was built, uh, the B-2 bomber, uh, the uh, B-1 bomber, the 10-11 Lockheed uh, in that area at Palmdale, and all the contractors around that basin uh, that supports that industry uh, have an annual uh, night with the uh, Jet Hawks uh, baseball team where they honor someone uh, tied to that aerospace business that has tested at been testing at Edwards. And one year I was picked as the uh, candidate and uh, they create a bobblehead with your obligation to sign for the first 200 people that come into the game. It, was show, it shows me coming out the top of a capsule uh, command module. So I found the person, the uh, company that had built them, they had a tag on the bottom. So I ordered the uh, 500 of them for infinity uh, to, and sign them to sell there. That's about all the time we have. Thank you so much, Mr. Hayes, for being on the show. We really appreciate having you. I'm happy. I enjoyed it. Enjoyed the conversation. Well, uh, we certainly appreciate it. And uh, listeners can find the full story in your new book, Never Panic Early, an Apollo 13 Astronaut's Journey. That's from Smithsonian Books by Fred Hayes. So, Brian, where can we find you online? So you can find me at www.brianlastly.com and on Twitter occasionally at Brian Lastly. And Mike, how about yourself? I'm at mwhankins.com or on Twitter at Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N. All of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please go to balloonstodrones.com and use the contact pages there, or feel free to submit an article for us to consider for publication. We'd love to take a look at it. And until next time, we will see y'all later. Thank you so much. Bye.